Hey, everybody. It is episode 101 of the Running Rogue podcast. Steve and Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Excited to be back at you after episode after the centennial episode on our part. Centennial. Thanks to everybody. Yeah. Wow, big words. Big words. Thanks to everybody who sent us messages. We got actually quite a few messages after our 100th episode. We really appreciate those messages and all of the support. So here's to 100 more. We're starting this one off in a very, I guess you could call it specific fashion. We've got 215 rogue athletes descending on Sacramento this weekend. And so we're going to be making this episode all about the California International Marathon and a California International Race Plan. For those who are doing CIM, you can benefit from this. For those who aren't doing CIM, I still think that the thought processes that we use to develop a race plan for this race could be helpful and might apply to a race coming up for you. So stay with us as we get to that in just a second. We've got to get back to some current events. Steve, we had some some turkey trot results that we need to talk about, particularly the Manchester Road Race. King Chess. Edward Chazarek got the win in a course record in Manchester. It's a oddly, it's an odd distance, 7.65K at, at Manchester, where he ran 21.16 to narrowly beat the course record there. But to emphatically beat the great Paul Chalimo, who ended up in second, obviously a really big win. It tells us that King Chez is on form. The question we'll get to after we talk about his race is on form for what, considering the fact that he is a man without a country. But let's just start with this result. What do you think? I mean, first of all, let's talk about the record because this record was set in 1995, Chris. This race has been run. A whole lot of times, and in all those years, it's always had a great prize fee. It's got always had great prize money. People always show up ready to rock and roll, and it's kind of a weird time of the year. It's sort of a spot where people test their 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 base training and their fitness that as they're as they're starting to either get ready for a cro- late cross season or they're getting ready to um, consider some attacks at an, some early indoor races, which we can expect that Cesarek will be doing, but. Chris, Philemon Hennick had this record from 1995, right? I don't know if anybody knows Philemon Hennick, but he was, a, he was an epic badass, and he was competing at a time of very, very early EPO when there was almost no testing being done. So I'm not going to say that Philemon Hennick was dope, but let's just say this record has lasted since 1995 and had a lot of people going after it because there was money on the line for that record-breaking too. So... I think that this result from Cesarek, especially since they all ran a slow early first mile and then he blasted away in the second mile. I mean, this is a really impressive race result for him. I'm less, and it was really cold temperatures, Chris. I mean, it was like nine degrees at the starting line or something like that. So really, really tough conditions. And um, yeah, he beat Chalimo, but I put a little less value in that because it seems like the rest of those guys just said, go get it, Ches." Go race, go have fun. And then Shalimo said, I'm going to win the backpack and, and, and get what I need. I'm not ready to go at that heat. Because they did not duke it out. It looked like Cesarek got away on a hill, and then they just let him go. 
But still, I don't take anything away from Chez. That's a huge record that he just bust broke, one that needed to be broken for a long time. And I think it's a, a great result for him. I don't put as much value in Talimo not being there. I think that that's not as big a deal. Well, it's also not his wheelhouse <laughs> here on the roads going a little bit longer than he normally runs on the track. But this race has great history, having been run in Manchester, Connecticut since 1927. And as you said, there's been some pretty stout performances through the years, often attracting a great international field as well as American field. King Chez has no country, though. He's born in Kenya of Kenyan descent, but has said he will not compete for Kenya wants to try to become a naturalized U.S. citizen, but that's a process that may take two years or more, which would put him past the 2020 Olympics of potentially becoming an American citizen. What does this mean, you think, for Chez? Like, what are we going to see from him if he can't compete in the World Champs next year and in Tokyo in 2020? So I think we are going to see him for sure in, in Tokyo. I don't know where he'll be running, but I will be surprised if this is not cleared up by then, I, I will be surprised if it's cleared up before ninth, before the world champs because it seems like a lot of whatever they're doing needs to be handled. I don't know any details on this. If any of our listeners do, we'd love to hear. So I don't know exactly what's going on with him, what kind of appeals they're making, whether they're, they're going after something in the U.S. or if they're going after something in Kenya, depending. Um, but uh, I do think that we'll see him in 2020 on an Olympic team. He's obviously good enough to make it a Kenyan team, in my opinion, and he's absolutely good enough to make it a U.S. team. And so, you know, I think that we'll see him in Tokyo, but maybe not see him in at the World Champs this year, this coming year. As for what he's going to be doing, he's going to be running fast. I'm going to tell you that for sure. It won't stop him from getting into major European races. Um, I think we will see a hot, early racing from him indoors, he seems to love running indoors. He comes from that northeast. You know, he moved to, I think it was the Philly area, or it was definitely in the northeast um, as a young, as a as a high schooler, as a Kenyan high schooler, um, and ran in the U.S. at that time. But he, so he knows cold weather, cold weather temps, and he is also in a position where he understands that in running indoors is a way to get his name out there and to get into some hot, hot races early on. And he always seems to be ready to go and ready to race indoors. One of the knocks against him is that where has he been, at least in his post-collegiate career, where has he been in June, July, and August? We've seen nothing of him. Um, Some of that can be blamed on injury. Some of that can be blamed on having not a country. But I think a lot of those things are going to be worked out this year, Chris, Um, whether they get done by the world champs. We'll see. Um, but I expect to see him on the starting line at, at the Olympic Games. I'd be shocked if he's not. We hope so, because we you got to believe at that point he'll be one of the best in the world at the 5K for sure, and potentially other distances as well. So we'll see. But rooting for King Chess to become an American citizen, we could use him. Oh, yes, we definitely can. <laughs> <laughs> on the men's side, for sure. And, you know, we already have a history. I mean, what's the difference between Paul Chalimo and Edward Cesarek? I mean, to be frankly honest with you, that there's a program called the U.S. Army team that Ch- that Chalimo was able to take advantage of. I mean, actually, Chaz has been here longer than Chalimo has. He went to high school here. So, you know, if we're doing this, if we're playing this game, we should play it all the way. 
And and I do think of all people, Edward Cesarek will find people who get to know him know he is in he's a great storyteller. He's a lot of fun. He a lot of people will respond to him. Um, he reminds me a lot of Chalimo, except that he's um, he's a little more uh, he's not quite as crazy as Chalimo, but he's there still. He would be a great addition to our Olympic team, as I assume we're going to see a number of Kenyan-born athletes on our Olympic team in 2020. Yep. And on the women's side, it was a close, close race. You had the top three separated by three seconds. Salafine Chesspole, the steepler, 19-year-old steepler from Kenya, ended up getting the win in 24-33 over Buze Dariba, who was just a second back, and Emily Sisson, who really made the race, ended up three seconds back, but right up there with two really, really talented East Africans. What'd you make of the women's race? I mean, Emily Sisson, man, that's that's some heady company she was going blow to blow with. And she did the work, you know. They when they finally made a big move, um, you know, they got away from her. They didn't get away from her on the first move. The second move they finally got away from her. You know, we heard rumblings, Chris, that she's running a spring marathon. She's able to run a four-mile race here at this level. Um, that's a real good sign. And, you know, it's another indicator that the weather was a huge factor. Was la- In 2016, um, Emily Sisson won this race in 24.08, and she ran 24.36 here. So that shows how much of a weather – how much the weather impacted – that race it was at least she's definitely fitter than she was in 2016 and she ran 30 seconds slower so that's a pretty big differential in terms of what we're dealing with with weather but i mean emily what a great race these are two greats that she's running against two greats who run on the on the track if she was in this position on a track race there would be a lot of smiling americans and when we think about her moving up to the marathon distance chris this is a portent to yeah Greatness, it's I good think. to see her back on form. You know, she had a little bit of a struggle earlier in the year and didn't quite come into the U.S. champs in normally normal Emily Sisson fashion, but is clearly on form. She won the 5K, U.S. 5K champs at the Abbott 5K right before the day before the New York Marathon, starting and finishing there in Central Park. We got to catch a brief glimpse of her as we were rolling to our destination that morning. So good to see her back and on form. And we can only hope that her coach allows her, Ray Tracy allows her to actually move up to the marathon sooner rather than later and really go after it because we think that she has great potential given her style for sure. Interesting note. Got to give Let's Run a shout out for this. They had this fact at the end of their Manchester recap to say that Ambie Burfoot, who is known for Runner's World fame and also won the Boston Marathon back in the day, 17 to, 72 years old now, but just finished his 56th consecutive Manchester road race. That's wow. unbelievable. He's won the race nine times that back is- in the day, but 56 years in a row he's finished. That's wow. longevity. He likes to earn his bird, yeah. doesn't he? He likes to earn that bird. <laughs> That's longevity. <laughs> really, really cool. I think we could all only hope to be able to finish a race 56 consecutive years maintain that kind of consistency so there you go manchester road race the one of the original turkey trots (laughs) to be honest all right so let's talk about 
previewing CIM a little bit. It's the U.S. Marathon Championships coming up here at the California International Marathon in Sacramento, known for its fast course. It drops about 350-ish feet from start to finish, although it does have some rollers, as we'll talk about when we get to our race planning discussion for CIM. But this is a course that sets up for a fast day. The weather is also setting up for a fast day. Looks like it's going to be upper 30s at the start, light winds, sunny day, warming into the mid 40s by the time the elites get to the finish. So pretty much picture perfect marathon weather. You might see some hats, gloves, and arm warmers, but those things will kind of get tossed as the race progresses. It's a little bit disappointing, though. You and I were talking offline about this, looking at the fields as as they're announced, at least currently on the USAT F site with the official status of entries, the field, while relatively large, which is good, is a bit underwhelming. It seems like you've got more athletes heading to CIM to get a standard, which is a popular place for it, versus to really go for the win. Let's start on the women's side. If you look at this list, Stephanie Bruce is coming back from New York. So she's making the quick turnaround, basically a month, four weeks uh, from New York to get back on the start line to try to win this race. She's clearly the class of the field. You've got some other athletes, Emma Bates making her marathon debut. Sarah Crouch, who was the top American at Chicago earlier this year, has run several times in the low 230 range. You've got Sarah Cummings, who you've mentioned, who's, you know, had some decent results worth mentioning. Dot McMahon, who is a Brooks Hansen's athlete who had a solid day at Boston on in tough conditions. Those are probably the top names in this field. But I just realized one other, Chris, before we saw okay. this online is Esther Atkins, formerly Esther ah, Herb, okay. yep. who people might recognize that name. Yeah, she's a 233, 234 marathoner um i think she made her 233 at boston um in 2014 so yeah she's also another one to keep an eye on in terms of of potentially being in the mix there too yep and she's got her teammates sarah cummings on the start line as well you would imagine that those two would potentially be working together but let's start talking about first stephanie bruce She's coming back four weeks, kind of pulling a Sarah Hall, so to speak, who came back last year to do CIM after running in Frankfurt. She had a little bit longer turnaround than than Stephanie's going to have. That's pretty quick. Now, granted, given this field, she's not necessarily going to have to run a PR to win this race. But I personally have a suspicion that she's not just lining up to try to get the win. I think she wants a fast time on a fast course. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think there's only one reason to get on this starting line, Chris, and that's that she believes she has something left, you know, and that there's something there. This is not unprecedented in terms of people doing something like this, right? We saw this just last year with Sarah Hall making a similar kind of move. Um, but I do think that I am not. I do think she's definitely the class of the field and I do wish her the best. Absolutely. But I'm a little nervous about this move. They must know some things about her and she must have responded very quickly because she finished the entire race 
And it went and went into it, as we know for a fact, went into it definitely ready to go at New York and expecting greatness on that day. And it wasn't like she just jogged it in either, Chris. I mean, she still ran pretty fast. So um, I'm a little nervous about this move for her. But the only reason I'm nervous is because I don't know any of the details. If we talk about if we talk about what we know Stephanie Bruce is capable of, if we talk about who her coach is and how smart and and level-headed and balanced a coach that he is, um, you know, in Ben Rosario and the, all of everything that's happening there at the at the NAZ Elite Group, she's coming ready to go. And so my nervousness is just one of those. Well, is this the smartest move? But I would expect that if she's got her coach behind her and she's behind this, then and people should be watching out. She's definitely the favorite beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a quick turnaround, but you got to believe that Ben and Stephanie know what they're doing here, that they've they've put all the calculus that they're going to put into it and made a very deliberate decision to come back in that short of time. You also got to think that because New York started a little bit more slowly that potentially she was able to bounce back pretty quickly on a course like that that has nice varied terrain, which doesn't cause you to use the same muscle groups the entire time. And so I believe she's ready, and I believe if she's going to be on the starting line, she's going to go out fast and not just go for the win, but try to go for a personal best on a good day with a fast course. Something similar to what we saw from Sarah Hall last year, who went out and basically obliterated the field and never looked back. So I think, I think we'll see that from Stephanie. I think she'll go out hard. I think she'll try to run 226, 227, 228 potentially. Her PR is 229 from Houston in 2011. I think she's going after that time. And then the question will be, can she hold it? Will her legs hold up? And will anybody try to go with her? That. I'm not sure. I could see somebody like a Sarah Crouch potentially jumping on with her. Maybe Emma Bates and Sarah Cummings. If and and Esther Adkins, as you said, potentially. But who knows? I mean, I think most likely it's going to end up with Stephanie by herself with everybody else daring her to stay off the front. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that well, the first and most important point of that is it won't be Stephanie all by herself. She'll have, I'm guarantee you she'll have some Sherpas along with her on the long, the ride. So, um, and that's not illegal. She can run, it's an open race. It's, so she'll have men around her, probably men she knows. I don't want to go any further than saying anything more than that, but it'll definitely be a group of people around her. In fact, one of our athletes, we've actually had a discussion with him about the potential of him running in that position. We think he's faster than what Stephanie's probably trying to run on that day, but you know, there'll be bodies around her for sure. So she won't be doing it by herself, but she will likely not be looking around and thinking anything at all about who the other players will be, who those players will be. Cause I would expect, you know, Emma Bates um, is really my pick here for the second overall. Um, I think she's going to be more likely to go with Stephanie. And I do think Sarah will go with her, but Sarah Crouch has had a tendency sometimes to run her own race and has been known and renowned of pulling people back at the end of races. She's a real fighter. She doesn't have multiple gears. She's going to hold one smooth gear, Sarah Crouch will, and try to hold on. So I do think Stephanie will have people with her. 
My 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 big pick here is Emma Bates. Chris, she was the first American at the World Half Marathon Champs this spring in Valencia, um, in a in a race that was that is always super hot. That race is incredibly competitive. Um, she didn't run an especially fast time. She ran seventy one forty five, so set, you know one eleven forty five, which is it's not incredibly fast, um, but it showed that she is in a mindset and in a position to be competitive and she was our first american there and so um i think you know that's a good sign for what we'll probably see from her so i i think that she'll be um tucking into that sort of second spot or at least trying to run the best race she can and be competitive with the best that she with the best americans in this field and i just don't think that i'll be very surprised if she's not on the podium um and then ultimately, I think that, you know, it's going to just be, you know, does Esther go after, does does Esther and Sarah go after, going to go with uh, a Stephanie Bruce? I don't know. I'm not sure that they'll, I think they may end up deciding what they think they can run on that given day. Maybe they just want to run under 230 um, since neither one of them have, have done that. Um, but my guess is that both Emma and Sarah are going to be a little more aggressive, take more risks and put themselves in a position that if Stephanie's up there, use that energy and use that flow. As we know on this course, what happens early on pays a huge, plays a huge part in what happens late in this race, um, very similar to Boston. So I think those who have done their downhill work and those who are ready for the kind of pounding this race produces will be the ones who have the most success. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But those are, that's what I'm thinking, Chris, that those three – well, are sort of, in my mind, sort of the, the class of the field with an extra Esther Herb in that mix and a couple others in that mix, but we'll see. Yeah, I like Sarah Crouch. I mean, I like Sarah Crouch. I mean, one note about her is she is coming back from Chicago, which is really, you know, only another four-week turnaround from Stephanie, so that's not ideal either to turn around in eight weeks and go run another marathon. So... In some ways, it may even be harder because it's not like you can really re-peak in eight weeks. You can extend fitness for four, but you can't re-peak in eight, right? So, no, you can't. Now, one thing to think about with that, one thing to think about that with Chris is there's no compelling need or reason for these women to scratch. So that's the other thing too. Is this something she thought and and put in as a backup plan, or is this something she's planning on doing? We definitely know Stephanie did not have that as a plan. We know she's racing, but it could be that Sarah may not be in that position of getting on the line. We'll see, yeah. right? But I I like Stephanie for first for the reasons we've talked about. If Sarah Crouch is present and correct, I like her for second. Emma Bates, I don't know. It's It's tough. To me, it's tough to make that leap from half to full your first your debut race i mean she could have a great race she could have a terrible race it's it's hard to pick her in that third third spot i i would like a an esther adkins potentially in the third spot because of the veteran elements that she brings to the race with emma bates somewhere in the top 10 still getting an a standard and being happy about that but potentially setting herself up for something fast down the road so that's what that's we what I will call, see. but we shall see. On the men's, go ahead. So I just so it's official and everybody hears me. I want to make <laughs> sure I'm calling mine right. So, Stephanie Bruce for the win, Emma Bates for second, 
And I'm going with Sarah Crouch right. for third. Those are my All one, right. two, three. And I've... I did call Emma Bates earlier in the year, Chris, when we were talking about potential women over the long haul who may be impactful. Emma Bates was one of my three or four that I mentioned along with Emily Sisson. Yeah. So I watched this girl run in college at Boise State. She is unbelievably smooth and very much built for the marathon race distance. So it'll be interesting to see um, how she does at this in this debut of and hers. And the good news is she's moving up early, which we yeah. have called for and are excited about more athletes taking that step sooner because the, the marathon is definitely where it's at. Now, switching over to the men's side, an interesting field, also a little bit lacking in terms of some of the top, top names, but I think you have maybe a little bit more depth if you look at the men's field at the very top. Particularly, you've got some athletes from groups that we've talked about many times. You've got NAZ Elite bringing, you know, Ben Ben Rosario bringing Benjamin Bruce, as well as Matt Lano Matt Lano to this field. Matt Matt's run two twelve, and in some ways might be the class of the field. You've got Zap Fitness Group bringing three athletes: Andrew Colley. Matthew McClintock and Joe Stillen doing his marathon debut. Joe being a guest on our podcast about a year ago, almost to the day. And then you've got a few athletes from the U.S. Army group. Heron Lagat, who we've talked about, you know, as somebody who has range. You know, he paces the steeple. He runs fast in the half. He is potentially capable with the marathon and with Samuel Kosky, his teammate, towing the line as well. Am I missing anybody? I think the only other person that I would throw in here, Chris, and, and this guy is definitely a long shot, not from the standpoint of what his skill set is, um, but in the fact that he's really on again and off again. That's Brian Schrader, who runs with um, the Saucony, the Freedom Track Club, you know, up out of uh, Boston yep. with Tim Bro. And Matt, I'm mean, uh, Brian Schrader. For go for he 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 ran at um at uh in Flagstaff at uh, Northern Arizona, and he for, he he gave up his last year of eligibility to go pro. It didn't work out for him, um, but he is incredibly talented, um, and and is a little bit strong and powerful for a marathoner, but with a talent base that could be something to pay attention to. Um, the only other guy, Chris, is Matt McClintock, who runs with Zap. I don't know where he's at in terms of fitness, but he's also somebody who came on really late in his college career and ran really, really well at the end of his college career. So it'll be interesting to see how he plays out. I'm real excited for Joe Stillen. It sounds like his fitness is there. I follow him on the social medias. He seems very focused, very driven, and he's got his head on straight for sure. Um, and, you know, his teammate um, who has re- the, the super uh, long hair, um, Andrew, Andrew, Andrew Colley, he has super long hair. He uh, also with Zap is somebody who to be, everybody be, should be watching out for as well in terms of somebody who has the skill set to be up there in the mix, banging it out. And then finally, Chris, the one only other guy that I think that really deserves a mention here beyond the ones that you've already mentioned is um, Brendan Gregg from the Hansons, Brooks Hansons group. Um, he's, he's shown um, flashes of brilliance on occasion. And so, He's somebody that if he's present and correct and ready to run, 
He's somebody to pay attention to and think about. So how would you handicap it? Who, who would you say would be the, the favorites? I have a feeling these guys are all going to be about the U.S. championship as opposed to our women's race, where I think people are much more focused on, on running a fast time and um, competing second. I think in this race, you're going to be seeing a lot more of an attitude of putting up Dukes and getting after it and racing. And for that reason, I think um, that they will go out relatively um, conservatively. Now, some of that has to do with what the U.S. Army guys will do and where they think their fitness is at. Um, you know, it's Scott Simmons is known now primarily for his track athletes and how well they're performing. But he was an original marathon guy, so he knows what he's doing when it comes to getting athletes ready for the marathon. So do not be sleeping on those U.S. Army guys. And I'm sure he's done his homework. I'm sure that Scott knows this course, and he's got his athletes ready to go. So I kind of see it as a U.S. Army battle versus um, sort of the Zap group. I think that there's kind of a clear it, – it, it, Karen Legat, Samuel Kosky, where will they play out? I'm not sure. But the other guy to be paying attention to here, Chris, who's not going to take – who's going to be coming – really hard at this is Ben Bruce. I think he's, he's probably really fit. Um, it seems like this was his plan that his wife would run New York city and then he would run, um, this race. He looked fit when we saw him in, in New York. Um, and so I think that Ben and Ben is known for being aggressive. He's not afraid. He's not afraid to go. So I kind of think you're going to see the U S army guys maybe do some work early on, Ben to be in that group and maybe see these Zap Fitness guys working together, working from behind in a pack and trying to see who they can go up and go get if anything sort of falls off. Um, what will be really interesting is do we have someone pull the um, the same basic move that uh, Parker Stinson made last year where he went off at 210 pace and ran off the front. Of course, that wasn't the smartest move given that race course, Chris. You and I both know that. I remember when he came by me, I was like, ooh, this is a, this is a bold, bold move. <laughs> but still, I think that we're going to see a more of a, a of a wait and wait late and get after it later in the race in this case. And I think we'll see consistent clicking of five minutes, you know, 505, maybe some 510s and a rather large pack early on. And I expect to see somewhere around the 15 to 16 mile mark, some movement being made, maybe by the U.S. Army guys, maybe by some fat Zap Fitness guys, and expect Ben Bruce to be tucked in there, keeping an eye on everything that's going on, and being ready to make moves as they need to make. If he's not the guy making the moves, what do you think? Well, I'm gonna make you pick, make your picks first, because I definitely have some different opinions. Okay, so with my pick, where I'm going. I am going to pick um, I'm gonna pick Ben Bruce for the win. I just think that uh, I think he's hungry. I think he wants it. Um, I'm gonna pick Ben Bruce for the win. I'm gonna go with um, Aaron Lagat for second and then I am going to pick Andrew Pauly for third um, from Zapin. So that's my three. Interesting. That would be huge if Stephanie and Ben could take. Both take the championship here, right? That would that would be a heck of a payday for cool. the family. Now, I I like I like a 
an AZ elite athlete at the top of this field, but not Ben Bruce. Yeah, I can see you calling that, but I don't know that I don't know that Matt is running for NAZ Elite anymore. I think he might just be running for Hoka, but he's not indicated there, and I think that would be indicated um, if he were. I think he's still in that group, but either way, he's a 212 marathoner. I think in a lot of ways, the most talented in this field at the marathon distance, and so I'm picking Matt Lano to get first. Second and third is harder. I want to pick Heron Lagat, but I'm just not sure what we're going to get from him over the marathon distance. So I'm going to take Andrew Colley for second in his, I believe this is going to be his marathon debut from Zap. And if it's not him, I think it's going to be a Zap athlete. I think you're going to, I can, I want to definitively say that you'll have a Zap athlete in the top three. I think Andrew's got the best shot, but it could be somebody like Joe as well. So I'm going Andrew Colley for second. And then I'll actually take the other U.S. Army athlete, Samuel Kosky, for third. Cool. Uh, Matt Lano for, um, is not with NAZ Elite, but he is still, I do believe he's still training in Flagstaff, but I don't know, but he's not on the team. He's not on their, on their list, and they update that frequently. So. Fair enough. Well, that's that's news to me. Either way, I think he will show up present and correct. I think he's he's got at least a history of training with Ben and one of the finer PRs in the field. So we'll see what we get from him. But that's my pick for the win. Ben, I just don't know. You know, as you say, he's he's kind of aggressive. But what are we going to get from him from the marathon? I'm just not sure. You know, it's been... I mean, he's run 102 for the half, but it's been two years since he's done that. And this might even be his first marathon. You know, he's he's a guy who's run really well on the track. He's a steepler originally. He's run some decent 5K times, but I'm not sure what we're going to get with him for the marathon. So we shall see. But I would love to see those, the, see. the Bruce family both on the podium that would make me happy even if i would be wrong so there you go tune into that we have to tell you about it because usatf doesn't seem to want to and so (laughs) it's crazy i don't understand this is a national championships in the marathon on a fast course on a beautiful day it should be something that everybody's talking about that you should at least see some buzz about on social media but there's basically zilch out there so we got to be the ones preaching about it but check out the results i believe there's a live feed you can watch if you go to usatf.tv you've got to pay for that unfortunately but hey if you're a true fan why not so there you go that's california international marathon on, on the elite side now we're bringing we've got 215 rogue athletes registered for this race on sunday steve it's insane now that includes the marathon and the relay vast majority of those are doing the marathon but we do have a handful of relay athletes shout out to them as well this is the biggest group we've ever sent to one city by a pretty decent size and we've had some pretty massive groups groups in the hundreds but never over 200 athletes showing up in one place in sacramento so it's going to be really really exciting we've got for those of you who might be in Sacramento racing as well. We do have some rogue events I wanted to mention to you. 
at sa- on Saturday morning, 8 a.m., we're going to be doing a shakeout run from the Sheraton Grand there in downtown Sacramento. So if you want to join us on a shakeout on Saturday, swing by the Sheraton lobby at 8 a.m. We've got our pre-race pep talk that I'll be leading at noon on Saturday as well. If you'd like to join us for that, send me an email, chris at roguerunning.com. We've got a limited number of people we can get into that room, and so I just need to make sure we're managing our numbers there. But if you'd like to join us for the pre-race pep talk at noon on Saturday, send me an email, chris at roguerunning.com. And then we're going to have a post-race party at the Sheraton Bar at 6.30 p.m. on Sunday if you want to swing by and say hi after the race. So lots of things rogue happening. We'll have a bunch of athletes going for big goals from those trying to run a 225 all the way to those trying to do their first marathon and just get it done. All of them are members, proud members of our community. We've got athletes, a good chunk of athletes coming from our podcast group, which we're super excited about. So we'll be bringing Austin athletes, podcast athletes from all over, as well as some Dallas athletes from our from our Dallas group as well. So it's going to be a truly national rogue experience, which is really, really cool. But we got to break down this course. It's a unique one, definitely a net downhill. You know, if I'm just kind of rounding numbers, it's 350 feet net downhill. But you do gain... You, you lose about 700 feet total and you gain about 350 feet. So that is the way the net works out. And one mistake that people often make with this course is thinking that it's going to be just a smooth, gradual cruise downhill when it's really not. You've got some, some rollers to think about, some different chunks of the course, particularly in the first half, to manage a little bit with some hills. So we're going to give you, we're going to start by giving you kind of a course overview so to speak to describe the course a little bit give you some things to think about there and then the second part we'll kind of talk about pace strategy about how you might approach this course or a similar course so starting on the course side steve as i was describing this is not just a smooth cruise down 350 feet you've got some ups and downs describe for the group what they can expect from a terrain standpoint Well, I think perhaps the most important and telling thing as I've shared with our athletes in the past and as I've shared with athletes this week is this race has calls itself the fastest race in the West, and it does have a pretty significant elevation drop. Um, And it definitely on 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 an elevation chart, if you pull up an old elevation chart of this race, you can find one at findmymarathon.com. Um, you'll see that the course definitely drops down, but I have yet to have a single athlete in all my years having athletes run at this race, which has been many years now, Chris, it's been 10 years ago that I sent my first group of athletes and that, that ran this race. Um, and not a single athlete ever has told me that they thought it was a downhill race. So, um, much as we talk about with Boston, this is something people need to get in their heads. If you came to this race and are expecting to feel like you're going to be running downhill, I think you're going to need to readjust your mindset. This is on paper a downhill course. And I think, you know, in that first in that first mile or two miles, there's definitely kind of a feel of running downhill, Chris. I do think many people will have that feeling early on in the first two miles that they're running downhill. 
But after that second mile, there's a climb and then it starts dropping again and it looks precipitous. But every time you drop a little, you climb back up. And every time you drop, you climb back up all the way throughout the entire course, Chris, until really about mile 20, 21, 22, where the course really kind of evens out. And at that point, the the blips are mostly just, they're nothing anyone would ever call a hill because there's just not enough elevation gain there for anybody to call it a hill. But early on, Chris, especially in that first 15 miles or so, even even up to the 19th, the little hill that pops up at 19, I think what happens is people will just say to themselves, it's running downhill, I'm running downhill, but they do not have that sensory experience. The eyes don't see a lot of downhill and they feel all the uphills, but they don't feel the downhill so much. And that's especially true after the five mile mark. And so much of the race plan that I subscribe to or the plan that I like to give to people has people being very conservative that first five miles um, and also to make sure that they're prepared and ready to do a, to be prepared and ready for that, that, that sort of false rock that I think is happening um, along this course. And by that, I don't mean that it's not dropping in elevation. What I mean is you don't get that sensory experience or that visual experience of it because you're constantly paying attention to and seeing the little climbs that keep coming at you throughout this course. Because this course, Chris, is awesome for recruitment of neuromuscular, of, of, of recruiting different muscle groups. I never worry about my athletes having tight hips near the end of this race unless they haven't done any uphill or downhill work. And then they've got all kinds of problems. But generally, I love this course because people don't get that same sort of mono muscle fatigue that happens when you run on dead flat courses. Um, and if you prepare some for the downhills, you're really ready to go. So that's my first point, Chris, is don't get lulled into a false sense of security before this race, looking at the elevation chart and thinking this is a downhill race. Yes, on paper, but in my experience, having hundreds of athletes cross the finish line of this race, I have yet to have a single one say to me, wow, that race was downhill. And it's still fast to be clear, but you just, you have some rollers and you have some climbs in there that I think are more important to understand mentally than maybe even physically. Cause physically, while it may, some of them may feel hard or you may feel like you've got to work a few times. It's actually good for you because you recruit other muscles, you get your glutes engaged, you, you, you basically are breaking it up so that you're not using the same muscle groups, pounding your quads the entire time, like some people have challenges with on pure downhill races. So in a lot of ways, it ultimately makes this race faster having that undulation, <clears throat> even though mentally it, you know, it's something you have to prepare for. I'm 100% agree with you, Chris. I, I, I do stress that. I meant not that it was going to be very difficult physically. I just meant that people would have this expectation that wasn't met. Yep. And so the mental game is very important in that at the outset that people just know that to be true and smile when they notice it and then carry on with their race plan and carry on with the strategic plan that they have in the race. Yep. And if you think about this course in sections, you know, the first three and a half miles or so are the most downhill. And, and really the first mile is actually the most downhill of the entire race. You actually lose between 50 and 60 feet in that first mile and you lose about a hundred feet 
over the first three and a half miles. So a lot of that elevation drop comes at the very beginning. In some ways, this the opening three miles is very similar to the opening of Boston, where you kind of get out and you're you're going straight downhill right away. And well, as we'll talk about when it comes to pacing, that can be a little bit dangerous for people. So it's just something to be aware of. You can watch the course video on their website, but it's not that helpful to really get a sense for, you know, you come out of the gate and you do drop. I think that's probably the, the only part of the course where you really feel the downhill is in that opening mile. Yeah. I mean, I do think people have a sense in my experience, people have said to me that, that drop that they go from 16 down to 18, it's not very precipitous, but people seem to notice it. People don't notice the one that's at 11, really. Well, they notice kind of a short downhill, and then they have to climb, and then they have to go back down again. But generally, I do think that's true, Chris, that the, the mostly what you're feeling from a downhill's perspective is happening early. And as we'll talk about with the pacing, I do think I've had most of my athletes, as they've been creating their race plans, I like to get them to give me a little bit of an idea of what they want to do beforehand. Many of them are just planning on having their sort of slower portions of the race or their marathon goal pace slower than marathon, you know, marathon goal pace plus for the slower side of that to go through the first three miles. And I'm really encouraging people to do that through five. And I'm not sure exactly how your plan plays out. That's something I've been articulating to people. And the only reason for that is just what we're talking about here, which is that um, after you come down that downhill, there are a few little bumps. There's some ro- rollers there that go through to five and six miles. And so I think it's really important for people just to keep that in mind as they think about the way this course lays out. I like to look at it to the first five miles and then, and then go from there. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to how you chunk it up in a second. And there's definitely options for that, but that first three miles drops, then you kind of hit from three and a half till about 10. You get, it's a, I don't want to call it flat because it's not flat, but you have a sort of rolling section where you lose a little bit less overall. And it's probably from a, just a pure comparison standpoint, the most challenging section of the course, sort of from four till 10, where you see a little bit more undulation, a little bit more up and down, basically net zero in terms of your net gain in that section. Then as you alluded to, you kind of have a steep drop going into mile 11, followed by probably the steepest climb of the race in mile 11 and then from there 12 till about 21 or so you actually enter that really most favorable section of the course where you've got fewer rollers more gradual downhill maybe not downhill that you notice except for that one section that you described but downhill that will definitely help you and then the last four or five miles are pretty much flat as you approach downtown and that's great because it's potentially very fast but it's also different and i think some people end up sort of mentally messed up there because they go from getting a little bit of help from the terrain that they may or may not notice from 12 to 21 to suddenly no longer really getting that (laughs) same help as they're trying to close it out so you know you might feel like you've got to give a little bit more to find new gears once things once things kind of flatten out towards the end you cross the river at just before 22 miles and so you'll have a bridge there and then you basically get into the grid the the sacramento grid which is very nicely laid out letters going one way numbers going the other way and you end up on j 
(laughs) streets heading towards downtown starting about 57th and then basically counting down from 57th till 8th street where you take a left into the capital area towards the finish and you basically count down from 57th down to 8th now you do have a little jog at 30th to cut from j over to l but basically once you yeah yeah but basically once you hit those numbered streets you've got 42 blocks to count off starting at 57th going down to 8th with a couple blocks between j and l and then once you make that left turn on 8th street you got about 200 meters to go to the finish now i always like to tell people about that because those that countdown can be either mentally annoying and make it feel like the race is lasting forever, or it can be a tool that you can put to work. So I've been talking to people about how they're going to use those street numbers to sort of give themselves some signposts as it relates to how they're closing this thing out to use that as a guide, as some triggers as they go. It's about 10 blocks per mile in that, in that closing stretch. So that's something you can put to work or you can ignore altogether if you think it's going to be a mind fuck. Yeah. Over the years, Chris, I've actually exaggerated that to the extent of saying it's going to be 127th street (laughs) and then you're going to come all the way in. So that I actually have said that before. So that when people hit 57th, they're like, Whoa, I didn't even think about it. I've I've used that method, that method to get in people's heads a little bit. Trick (laughs) them. Yeah. Now, <laughs> you know, I'm never, I'm never, I'm never against a little trickery <laughs> to try to get the athletes in the mental space to do what they need to get done on race day. That's for sure. Now, a couple other things to note, just generally about the setup and logistics. You know, this is a point to point. I mean, you're going from Folsom to Sacramento, basically running from the northeast of Sacramento down southwest towards Sacramento, finishing pretty much heading due west as you kind of hit those numbered streets coming in but there is a bus out to start those start to line up in a few different spots but the primary ones will be taken by those that are by the convention center you got to take a 45 minute bus out to Folsom that starts about 5 a.m so you do have to plan accordingly for how you're going to manage your nutrition pre and post and during that bus ride the nice thing the nice thing about the buses is that they're super convenient and well run you're jumping on school buses so there's nothing luxurious about them but they've got the whole logistics of it all dialed in you can stay on the buses once you get there you can jump off you can jump on and stay on the buses till about 15 minutes before you have to start the race and so all of that stuff is runs fairly smoothly but it's obviously something you just have to plan for and account for in your pre-race nutrition and planning once you get to the start, it's pretty well laid out. You've got more porta potties for this race than I think any race on the 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 continent. That's one of their <laughs> claims to fame is not having you have to wait in the porta potty line, which is I know welcome for many. So that's something you won't have to worry too much about. I do recommend getting to your start corral or at least finding where you're going to line up with about 20 minutes to spare so that you know where you're going um, after dropping your stuff at gear check, which they'll take into downtown for you. And given that the temperatures are going to be cold, you're going to want to have some throwaway gear that you can use while you're standing there at the start and then toss right before the gun goes off. 
but this is, you know, the race is about 9,000 people. It's not Chicago. It's not New York. And so even though that's still a lot of people, it doesn't feel as overwhelming as some of these major, major city marathons. It's definitely manageable and something that, you know, isn't gonna cause you to think about crazy, insane start line logistics. But I do always recommend just take a look at the map, the start line map. So you orient yourself where the bus drop off is, where the gear check is, where you want to line up, all those things. So you know generally where you're headed before you get there. Well, one of the things I wanted to say about that in terms of the number of people that are in the race, um, the course is relatively, at the very beginning is pretty wide road, but it turns quickly onto Oak Avenue, Chris. And it runs, um, it does run pretty, um, on, on a pretty narrow road that sometimes makes people feel a little uncomfortable in the first few miles um, before it takes left onto Fair Oaks. Um, one of the weird things about their map, Chris, is it doesn't have miles on it. Their interactive map doesn't have mile markers on it. So I don't know exactly what that turn is. You know what? how far in it is before they turn that left onto Fair Oaks? Um, and when they do that, it, it, it basically oh, widens out immensely and there's a ton of, ton of room. So nobody should freak out in that first three or four miles about, you know, I'm going to be this tight all the way through. No, it totally opens up for all pace groups and widens out nicely. But that first few miles, um, as you turn out of Folsom and on to Oak Avenue, it feels a little tight, but that's not something anybody should get too worried about. When they take that left onto Fair Oaks, the course just widens out really nicely, and there's plenty of room to roam. No way you'll be saying later that you were jammed in behind people and you, couldn't have, you didn't have space. Yeah, it turns pretty quickly. It's just before the mile marker. So... Not too bad there. Other details to note is that from a course standpoint, this is this is a quote-unquote smaller race. Incredibly well run. The logistics are great. We actually know the race director, a couple of the folks involved with the race really, really well. And so it's a well-put-on race. But it is, in some sense, a small-town race in that you know the water stops are manned by or woman by you know stu- student organizations and school groups and community organizations and things like that. And so it's, while it's incredibly well run and there's nothing to worry about from a logistical standpoint, it's not going to have the same structure and consistency that you might see from aid station to aid station at a Boston or a New York or Chicago. So you do have to just be a little bit more flexible, roll with the punches a little bit, you might have a 10-year-old handing you a water cup potentially and you know and that's okay but just be prepared for anything out there on the course it's looking like the weather as i said is going to be pretty much perfect at the start and we're going to have potentially a slight tailwind for some of the race as as the wind's going to be coming out of the north and you'll be on some some pretty consistent sections where you're just going north south but light winds, nothing to worry about. So that's the general course overview. Other than, I guess, one other thing about the finish. Once you take that left on 8th Street, you do have another left turn into the Capitol grounds where you finish right in the shadows of the Sacramento Capitol building, the California State Capitol. There are two different finishing shoots. 
The first one you get to is actually for women. The second one you get to is for men. Now, I know partially they do that for the USATF championships because they, they have separate finish lines for the men and the women. For the rest of us, I don't know why exactly that makes sense, but just know you if you're a female, you're taking the first left into that capital grounds. If you're a guy, you've got a little bit further taking the second left. Ultimately, the finish lines are staggered slightly, so you're still running the same distance, but that is just something to note as you enter that finishing shoot. You've got about 200 meters to go once you take the left on eighth, so you'll pretty much be able to see the finish from there, and you've just got you know, either a first left or a second left, depending on male or female. Anything else from a course standpoint to mention before we talk about pace? No, I think that was good that you dialed in on that, Chris. That's something that some people get a little weirded out, especially those folks who will be running, you know, in that sub three hour range before it starts to become just pell-mell madness, whoever can get to the finish line in whatever way they need to. Those folks going under three hours need to pay attention to that. Some I've heard I've heard stories of people stopping in the street and 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 not knowing what to do. And it's uh it's not a big deal, but it's just something to pay attention to for sure. Yep. All right, so now let's um, yeah, go ahead. There is one, Chris, and that before we go into the pace-by-pace thing, is just also recognize that this race has a little bit weird in the sense that you run on, like, one road for somewhere around 20 miles, basically. So now it turns and it changes and it switches a little bit, and you won't necessarily know that you're on one road. And I do think you feel it from mile 13 to about mile 21 or 22 is when you really know that you're on one road and at that point you'll love it but you're actually technically on the same fair oaks boulevard from five mile five and really you only take a couple little wiggles but you basically from mile five to mile 26.2 i mean mile 26 or so you're kind of on the same road so that's another thing just for people to keep in their mind as they're used maybe used to twists and turns and lots of those kinds of things there are like five or six turns on this course total. And um, that's just something I noticed that people discussed with me over the years as something they might not have been especially not really knowing because it looks a little different on the map. You know what I mean? That's one of the nature and, and even point to point courses. This resembles in a lot of ways, the way Boston kind of feels the same way, Chris, that you're like, wow, I'm on the same road for all this time. When do I turn? And so that's just something for people to pay attention to, especially those who have Boston experience. This race in so many ways kind of, and it's a small version of Boston. And it's good good for people to keep that in mind when they think about how they're, how they're visualizing their race and how they're thinking about the way they see themselves on the race course. And I also, you know, I went yesterday and watched that, um, the course preview, you know, the video of it. You can't really tell that on their video either. But there is a palpable sense of knowing that you're on the same road for a really long time that people just might want to keep in mind as they think through the race. Yeah, and it's pretty rural initially. So in some ways, the terrain is kind of like Boston, where you have long straightaways with more rural rural scenery and, and, and things you're sort of looking at, a bunch of trees. So yeah, if you want to get a sense for it, definitely watch that video, which is incredibly boring. It takes about 30 minutes. I don't think you necessarily need to watch the whole thing, but you can kind of fast forward through sections to just get a general sense of the terrain. But the light, the nice long straightaways are good for running a fast time. So let's talk about it. Before we talk specific sort of pace plan, 
I wanted to kind of cover off on some key principles for approaching this race or a race like it. The first, which really applies to any marathon, is that you got to start smart. I think the the way this course starts with the 60-foot net drop in, in mile one, that's an incredibly dangerous booby trap for many people who will get out too hot, get sucked into a pace that's too aggressive and not be able to get off of that and then ultimately both go too fast, burn too much energy, but potentially beat up their quads for later. And so we'll talk about what it means later in terms of paces, but you just got to be really smart at the beginning and not be too aggressive or greedy on that initial downhill because the temptations will be all around you. You're going to have people going out fast around you. You've got the adrenaline of the start as it is, and then a 60-foot net drop. And some people will have the idea that, hey, I should take advantage of that and quote-unquote bank time. But as we've learned from these kinds of courses, Boston included, it's a very, very dangerous strategy. Very, very dangerous, Chris. And, and to boot, to add just to that, um, again, California International Marathon's race production team is top-notch. This is this is this is like world class level race directing and race production done on a small scale, but they still don't control the individual people who are making decisions in pace groups over the first ten miles of the race. And I will never forget over the last few years standing at the five mile point where the race turns, um, being on that corner and looking at the accordion that was the pace groups. <laughs> There were pace groups that were butt to butt and then pace groups that were spread out across time. So again, those of you who are counting on pace groups, and this is something Chris and I talk about all the time, as well-produced, and I honestly, I think the pace groups at CIM are excellent. They're, they rival Austin's pace group leaders in terms of, of excellence. There's still people who can make mistakes and so follow your race plan and know what you're trying to achieve and what objectives you're trying to achieve. And don't rely on your pace group to get you through early on in this race. This is especially true on a course that's downhill. It's hard for those pace group leaders to dial in. And that's assuming that they care because occasionally they don't. So just keep that in mind. <laughs> Mad respect to all the pacers out there. But yes, we're always generally skeptical of trusting a stranger with your race plan. <clears throat> so start smart. We'll talk about what that means in a second in terms of pace. The second thing I want to emphasize, and we talked about this in New York as well, where because of the rolling nature of this course and because you've got you know some uphills and some miles, some varying levels of downhill and different miles, until you get to the end, really every mile looks a little bit different. It has a little bit different profile. And as a result, what is more important is less about dialing into a specific pace and more about dialing into a specific rhythm. And so I've, as I've talked to athletes about this, and we've talked about it on this podcast, Steve, is it's all about rhythm and flow on this course. And yeah, you want to get to a target time, and we'll talk about that in different sections, but you may not see the same time in your watch from mile to mile, particularly from four till... 19 or so until the course kind of flattens out and that's okay worry less about 
hitting an exact pace and more about trying to just run a consistent, smooth rhythm and keep your energy levels from mile to mile or your energy burning from mile to mile as consistent as possible. So that's also important. And then I'll mention one more thing as a general concept, Stephen, I'll throw it to you to add to this list. The other thing I've been emphasizing is that you, because you do have the rollers and most of those occur from 11 to sooner, you really shouldn't fight any of the hills on this course. When you do have the ups, none of them are crazy massive climbs. Of course, maybe that depends on where you're coming from. If you're coming from Austin, certainly none of, none of them are, are crazy massive climbs. If you're coming from Houston, maybe they will be. But the idea is that you shouldn't fight any of those. You shouldn't be burning matches. You shouldn't be having a heart rate that's so elevated you have to recover on the backside. You want to let those hills slow you down a little bit naturally. Try to stay in control. Keep that rhythm consistent, as I mentioned. And then get over the top. You're going to have a downhill on the other side. And you'll make up whatever time you quote-unquote lost on the other side of it. But you really shouldn't be fighting any of these early hills. Just keep that rhythm and flow going. What else would you add? Um, just another point about um, your hills as you're talking with rhythm and flow. Is that because this um, elevation chart drops um 350 feet basically you know i mean well no that's not true like i can't remember exactly how many feet it dropped that elevation chart does not show as closely what those hills do and they are a little steeper as you said chris people in austin won't look at them as steep but people from flatter areas um just need to prepare themselves for that fact as we talked about that it's just a little more uphill than you might expect especially if you're not from a place that has um, rolling hills like we have in Austin. Um, I always think this, especially in my experience, is people go through the little old town section near the 10-mile mark, and they go up that hill that's at 11th Street. It doesn't even show it as a but a blip on the elevation chart, but it always seemed to be a real thing to the athletes that I've coached. So keep that in mind that, as Chris said, you don't have to dig deep and push hard on any of these hills. There's always a place to make up for that ground if you lose something, and this is the perfect race, as we'll talk about, Chris, for people to be using a bit more wide range in terms of what they're saying for their marathon goal pace or where they're at with their paces. They need a lot of flexibility in terms of if your goal pace is 821 per mile, you're not going to run 821 per mile pace, even if you want to run a dead even split rate. It's not going to happen on this course. It's impossible to do so. So don't worry about that. Make sure, as we'll talk about as we break this course up and go through the mile-by-mile mile sections and chunk-by-chunk chunk sections, that you keep that in mind that this elevation is rolling enough and downhill enough that it's not going to play out as an even split thing. But that's to your benefit. That's one of the things that makes this race so fast. If you can play it right and get your rhythm and flow right, Chris, this, this is a fantastic race. Yep. So let's talk about how you might chunk it up in terms of a pace plan. And we're going to give you at least two options here. One that I'm going to give you, which I'm going to call the KISS plan. And then, you know, Steve, you've got one that's a little bit more chunked up than what I'm going to provide. 
I think either can work. And then it's just a matter of weighing the pros and cons based on what kind of athlete you are, what your strengths are and so forth. Uh, on the KISS plan, which I've been giving to a lot of people, KISS stands for keep it simple, stupid. The idea being that you just try to really minimize the complexity of the pacing plan and just try to get to as quickly as possible that rhythm and flow that I talked about. On the KISS plan, I'm recommending that people get out in mile one about 20 seconds a mile slower than their target marathon pace. So if you're shooting for nine minutes per mile, run 920 in that first mile. And then from there, work down about 10 seconds in the second mile and then get to your target pace by that third mile. And essentially hold that from mile four all the way till 21. Now you're going to potentially have some blips in there where you're going a little bit slower, potentially at mile nine, which is net uphill. You've also got that steeper climb at mile 11, which may impact some of you a little bit more. So there's a couple miles in there that might be, say, 10 to 15 seconds slow. But effectively, you should try to run a consistent rhythm from four till 21. And then once you cross the river and get on that, that lettered and numbered grid pattern, then it's time to start closing from about four miles out where you try to progress about 10 seconds a mile as you finish, basically until you can no longer progress. So cut it down 10 seconds in mile 22, 23, another 10 seconds, 24, another 10 seconds. And then from there, finish with everything you have left. So pretty simple, straightforward. That kind of plan sets it up for slightly negative splits, nothing too aggressive with the key caveat being that you sort of let those miles in the middle manage up or down slightly by trying to maintain a consistent rhythm or flow. So you might find that if you're shooting for nine minutes as your target marathon pace, you're going to see some 905, some 910s. You might see some 855s and that's okay as long as you're trying to be consistent. So that's my really simple, really straightforward plan. Now, some people are going to say, Hey, Chris, there's no way I can run downhill mile at 20 seconds slower than marathon pace. That seems silly. And what I'm going to say is that that may be your hardest mile of the race in terms of managing it, because I think that's where you're going to have to get out with all the adrenaline of the people around you. You're going to think that you're going slower than you actually are. And so you really want to start this race like you're starting a long run, you know, like you're out you're out the door to your house or you're you just met your friends at the, the trail you normally run on or here in Austin at Rogue and you're walking out the door to go for your normal easy 20 miler really that should be how you treat mile one and then let that downhill carry you I think if you do that with the adrenaline of the start you're going to end up somewhere in the pace range that I described if you're a little bit slow celebrate it because that means you did your job if you're a little bit fast then back off a little bit that's okay but just don't run this first mile faster than marathon pace. That will be the biggest mistake you could make on this course. So that's how I lay it out, Steve. I know you've got a more stage gate kind of method. Generally, loose structure is pretty similar. But as you said, you like to have kind of a five-mile chunk at the beginning. How would you break it down? 
So I want to say, first of all, that no matter what anybody listens or hears, this is not that I'm saying anything different from what Chris said. Really, the, liter- the plan is the same. Um, start slow, finish fast. This course is awesome for that. We've seen it play out. For those who follow this plan, they're almost uni- and they are fit enough to reach the goal that they needed to reach, that they want to reach. Those are two big caveats. Follow the plan and be fit enough to run the time that you want. We've seen a lot of success with this. Um, and Chris, my basic plan is very, it's the same as yours in terms of the way they want to look at it coming down. I just like to use the idea of what we call gates, which I've talked about in the past, which is just ensuring that you're chunking the race up into set chunk that allows you to look at what your cumulative time is. And the reason I like to say that is because let's say that you're trying to run 750 per mile for the first five miles. You're not going to run 750 per mile. There's going to be some 755s and some 745s, maybe even a 740 or maybe even an eight minute. And on this course, um, especially if you're looking at your watch from the real time, like what's happening at that exact moment, you're going to have a very hard time staying on that pace. And so I really like for my athletes to know what they need to come through a gate in or where they're at at the five mile mark. So I broke this race. I like to break this race up into three chunks. Well, it's four chunks, basically. The first is from mile one through the fifth mile as one chunk. The next is from mile six to the 15th mile as the net through the 15th mile as the next chunk. And then 16th mile to the 20th mile as a third chunk. And then after that, it's just closing and finishing up. And, you know, there's a hill at 18 um, that is kind of important to pay attention to just from the sense of knowing that it's there. But otherwise, you know, I use this and it's, it's, it's done me in good stead. And the reason I like these gates is it allows people the chance to know where they're at in real time based on their undulating and adjusted paces that are happening on the course with this downhill and rolling course. So my suggestion is to, is, is to break it up in those chunks, one, to five, one through five, six through 15, 16 through 20. And then I like to talk about closing ten, five to 10 seconds per mile, depending on what you need to get to get to the finish line um, if you can consider continue to accelerate, do so. Um, if you're looking for a big negative split plan, you can go slower at the start and then run faster at the end. If you're a little nervous because your fitness is not quite, you're not so sure that your goal time and your fitness are directly in line and you know where that is, then you might make a little less of a negative split plan. Um, I'm not really here to give this podcast this group, the people on this podcast, that kind of advice, I save that advice for my athletes. I work with one-on-one based on our conversations, but generally it should be down. It should be slower to start, faster to finish. I like to see at least 15 seconds. I prefer 20 seconds per mile slower, Chris, but I have athletes that are right now that I've got planning who are doing 10 seconds per mile slower in the first five miles. Most of that has to do with the particular pace that athlete's trying to run, where their strengths lie, and how comfortable they are with an aggressive close at the end of the race. So that's kind of how I line it up in those four sections, Chris. But we're exactly the same in the fact that we're saying, hey, go slow, finish fast, 
that's the way to run this. Yep. Don't bake time, bake energy. If you play this race smart at the beginning, you will have something at the end. And you have to trust that, especially on a day that's going to set up for pretty much picture-perfect marathon conditions. Knock on the wood that I'm sitting next to you now. So there you go. So that's your pace planning. Pretty straightforward, basically. Start smart, finish strong. It's, it's as simple as that. Harder to execute maybe in person, but I think as long as you can get out conservatively, you're going to be in good stead later in this race. Now, we wanted to, I wanted to wrap it up with just kind of a few mental things to bring to bear. You know, don't, don't neglect the mental preparation. And I think sometimes on a fast course, on a day that's going to set up for good weather, sometimes it's tempting to maybe neglect some of the mental preparation because you're almost looking at it like it's going to be too easy. Now, that would be perhaps a rare person that would make that mistake for a marathon, but I think it could be a potential mistake that we're lulled into a false sense of security given that the conditions are so great. And so wanted to remind you of some of the things we've talked about on this podcast before. One thing certainly is to know why you want what you want on Sunday. What's your purpose for the day? And now I'm not talking about big existential life purpose. I'm talking about what's your reason for wanting your goal that you're shooting for on Sunday reconnect with that over the coming days and get a crystal clear picture of of that reason why you want four hours or a Boston qualifier or maybe just finishing your first marathon. So connect with that purpose. Secondly, of course, do your homework on mantras. Steve and I have talked about this many times. We've got different ways of thinking about it, but personally, I like to have some rhythm mantras to get me in that flow of the middle miles and then some fight mantras at the end to get the most out of the final miles. So do your homework there. Wanted to remind you about visualization, thinking about this race in your mind's eye. Personally, I will do a full, in addition to doing some more segmented visualizations that I've been doing now for almost a month, I'll do a full, it'll take me about 30, 40 minutes, visualization of this entire race from getting on the bus at the beginning or waking up at the hotel, getting on the bus to finishing with my goal time on my watch. I'll do a full visualization this week in my final prep so that basically I've done what I'm expecting to do on Sunday before in my mind's eye before I get there. And then finally, one thing I've been encouraging people to do is to, to set your intention, you know, to have some words of affirmation to be repeating to yourself this week of what you're going to do or what you need to hear to keep your mindset positive, to think about the positive what ifs rather than the negative what ifs that could come in the form of saying, I will run X. If that's your goal, it could come in the form of just saying, I am strong, I am fit, I am ready. Something of that nature to remind yourself, speaking it out loud, that you're ready to do what you set out to do on Sunday. Those are some some small reminders on the mental side, but just do what you need to do to be present and correct on Sunday morning. What else would you add, Steve? I mean, that's like uh, the main things you hit there, Chris. I mean, that's, uh, as you said, I think the idea of keeping it simple is really crucial and critical. And um, I don't have much to add. The one thing that I do think is I want to reiterate that idea of 
you know, I think I've been thinking about this a lot lately, Chris, and we've been, we talked with our, with the athletes that I have in the podcast group that are sort of looking at um, them going into race and how they're into a race and how much more they feel their intent as they get close to a race. And so those of you who are, who are racing, you want to channel that energy in a positive way. But sometimes I think, Chris, when you're this close, it's really hard to think about big picture purpose stuff. You know, it gets a little wonky and maybe for some folks, they feel a little bit like um, it just can make them feel like it's a little too much to think about as they're nervous before a race. And so what I like, what I've been suggesting to some folks is to just think about your why and why you're doing this race and not necessarily go at your purpose from the standpoint of the big global existentialist view of who I am as a human being and why I run and why I run forever and ever, but more about why you're running this race and what is it that you really want to get out of it? Because if you can get your purpose for this day dialed in and set, it makes all this other planning so much easier for it. It makes it easier to look at your race plan. It makes it easier to take a negative split plan and execute it. It makes it easier to trust your own rhythm and flow rather than a pace group. It makes it easier to have that fight at the end of the race over those last 50 blocks when you're just pulling the finish line in towards you as you're trying to drive your way all the way through to the finish and close as fast as you possibly can. All of those things can be, can be turned into a huge benefit if you know your why, know the why while you're doing this race and just keep it really simple. And that should play into those mantras. It should play into the race plan. It should play into all the things that you're doing going into race day and what you're doing in the race itself. And if there's one thing I can ask my athletes to do, it's that. Go back to why you're doing this race. Those of you who already have a statement of purpose dialed up and ready to go, you guys can go with the big picture if you want. But for those who maybe are just kind of getting into this and they're listening to our podcast because they're running CIM and maybe they haven't listened to a whole bunch of other stuff on our mental training, focus on the reason why you're running this race. And if you're really clear and have a clear intent on why you're doing this race, almost all the rest of this will play out in your hand. So I really recommend before you get on that airplane that you get real clear on your reason for doing this, your why for doing CIM. And I bet a lot of the rest of your weekend, especially those nerves going into race day, will dissipate and become much more manageable because you asked for this, right, Chris? It's what people want to do and what they've decided to do. So go out there and take it. And so that's the one other thing I would suggest, which is just a little bit of a nuance yep. of what you suggested, Chris, is to get your why dialed in and ready. And it will make a lot of this other stuff that we've been talking about for over an hour now really resonate and play out well for you on race day. Yeah, and we'll finish with a quote that I shared with our athletes here in Austin a couple of weeks back as we were breaking down the CIM course for them. I'm bringing a theme, at least for our athletes, to this race, which I'll unpack a little bit more in our pep talk on Saturday, which is this idea of carpe diem, seize the day. And there's a quote from the Roman poet, Horace, who actually wrote the words carpe diem in 23 BC. I'll finish with this quote. And then for those that would like to hear more, I'm going to unpack a little bit more about what it means to seize the day 
on Saturday if you want to come to our pep talk. But he finishes this poem with this. He says, in the moment of our talking, envious time has ebbed away. Seize the day. Trust tomorrow even as little as you may. And so, so there you go. We've got perfect weather, perfect course, perfect energy with a bunch of rogue athletes and hopefully podcast listeners bringing their best on Sunday. So now it's time to seize the day. Cool. We will, awesome, we will end it with that. Y'all, thanks for listening to episode 101. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. We'll hope to see you in California. Otherwise, we'll talk to you next time.